The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Does Data say why he wants to see us? He said something about his new image. I tell you, he's been acting kind of strange lately. How so? Well, if I didn't know better, I'd say he was showing signs of insecurity. <laughs> yes, but you do know better. Androids don't feel such things. I don't know. Sometimes I think he's becoming more human than any of us realize. Come in. Did you damage your face, Dana? It is a beard, Geordie. A fine, full, dignified beard. One which commands respect and projects thoughtfulness and dignity. Well, opinions? It's, um, very different. When I stroke the beard thusly, do I not appear more intellectual? <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to go now. What the fuck? Why was she laughing? Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, December 29th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. It's our last broadcast for the year 2016, and it's the first time, really, that we've continued with all new programming right through the holiday season, though last year was our first time we even had holiday programming, if I recall, Robert. Some listener updates, developments, and news on our year-end show today about our show, along with a continuation of one or two of the topics we visited over past broadcasts. And I understand one of those will relate to our discussion with Western University's Professor of Applied Mathematics, Christopher Essex, last week. Is that correct, Robert? Oh, yeah. I just want to expand on it a bit and uh, add some more, uh, more ideas. Okay. But before we begin, don't forget that at any time of year, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, Robert, what's on your mind today? Apparently, you don't think the conversation was quite wrapped up last week. Is that the case? Oh, or? this is a, such a complex topic, artificial intelligence. It has so many different facets to it from the moral, the ethical, the uh, political, the scientific that we wouldn't cover it in uh, 500 shows, let alone two. It's funny because at first I thought this was a topic that we'd be lucky if we could fill 15 minutes with. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's not quite the case. So let's just expand on the topic for a bit. You know, a couple of years ago, Stephen Hawking had this to say about AI. Quote, I believe there is no deep difference between what can be achieved by a biological brain and what can be achieved by a computer. It therefore follows that computers can, in theory, emulate human intelligence and exceed it. In short, the rise of powerful AI will be either the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. We don't know yet which, unquote. Christopher Essex suggests that 
that Stephen Hawking was sort of blowing things out of proportion a bit. And, and, I, and I really appreciated the way uh, Professor Essex always used the word algorithm instead of what you and I would have used, perhaps, or the layman on the street, when we would say computer or Android or AI. Mm-hmm. He would bring us back to Earth and say algorithm, because that's all a computer is. So have you ever done any computer programming, Bob? Oh, yeah. I had yeah. to do Fortran and uh, so what did was I. the other one? It was another Pascal, one. Yeah. Cobol, all of Cobol. those. Cobol. Yeah. Back in the days when you had cards. Yes, I did the same thing back in, oh, uh, this was the late 70s. And you had to make sure you had good elastic bands. On a VAX <laughs> computer. Yeah. It, it took up half the room. Is yeah. when you had to submit your cards to the uh, computer controller there, and you'd get them back half an hour later and find out that you had a comma in the wrong place and nothing worked. You know, one thing about that process is that seeing it in such a physical form really helps to understand what's happening inside computers today. Yes, as a matter of fact, the uh, the memory of a computer was simply little tiny rings around copper wires, and I got an opportunity actually to see that under a microscope once. Uh, believe it or not, it was in Gander, Newfoundland at the Aviation Museum. And it was computer memory at the time. Of course, that's completely changed now. But it gives you an appreciation of not just the complexity, but the simplicity of it all. And the fact that it is a machine, they're following rules that we input into them. So with that in mind, last week we concluded that our AI exists, artificial intelligence exists and has existed for several years. That is the definition of both the terms artificial and intelligence. That's what we're basing it on. My first awareness of an algorithm which could learn and apply that knowledge was, for me at least, you know, speech recognition computer program, which came with a Windows, I forget which version now, maybe a decade or more ago, where you had to, um, the program would present several paragraphs of text, which you would read aloud into a microphone, and the computer would take several repetitions of the exact same reading for the computer algorithm to be able to recognize precisely precisely what you were saying with any degree of accuracy. So if you had an accent or or a strange inflection in your voice, it would pick up on that and correct for it. Is that the idea of that exercise? Let's just take the word um, hawking, as in Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would have to say hawking, 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 several times in a paragraph, right? And then it would sort of amalgamate all of your um, utterances of that, the word and associate it with H-A-W-K-I-N-G sure. so that it knew in the future that if it heard this particular sound, this is the word that you meant. Now, to this day, such algorithms don't interpret speech very accurately. Um, in my experience, it may be maybe 90 95% accurate. Um, especially when I'm using my Google Maps and things like that, trying to put in an address, especially with W's. It just doesn't get it out, and maybe it's my Newfoundland accent. I don't know. I'm always thinking of the odd joke on the Big Bang Theory when they're trying to talk to to Siri, I think it is, and she gets it all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 90 or 95%, by the way, might sound high, you know, considering the task of writing subtitles for a video. When you have to correct every 10th word, right, or every 20th word, it is frustrating to the point of being almost useless. Yes. So 90, 95% accurate is not good enough in my book. 99.99, maybe. Nevertheless, the algorithm exi- exhibited what we commonly define of as intelligence, which, you know, using the very broad definition, which we didn't really get into last show, it's just the simply, uh, the, simply the ability to learn and apply that knowledge. And that's what the algorithm 
was designed to do. Intelligence, in fact, in, is almost everywhere in the animal kingdom, at least, and has been around for about a billion years or so, using that definition, learning. There is an experiment I recall doing um, in an undergraduate science lab where we trained a slug. Now, the slug was indifferent to two different sources of food. I forget what the food was. One source of the food we treated with quinine. Now, if you know, quinine is probably one of the most bitterest uh, substances you can ever have. The slug is repelled by the quinine and emits a slime, actually. It just sort of it draws back and then you get this slime coming out of it. After a few repetitions of this, the quinine is no longer presented with the food source, yet when that food is presented to the same slug, it once again retracts and emits slime, even though there's no quinine there. The lowly slug has a memory of the nasty association of that particular food with the quinine and therefore has learned to avoid that food. So there's intelligence in as, you know, as lowly an animal as a slug by that dictionary definition. Now, similar experiments were done on higher order animals, of course, with the same results. We all remember or have heard of at least Pavlov's dog. It was a serendipitous finding that the dog salivated when Pavlov entered the room. Now, uh, the dog having learned, of course, and remembered that on several previous occasions, whenever Pavlov entered the room, he would feed the dog as part of a, an experimental trial. That's actually not, that was more like an autonomic, autonomic response more than a, a um, you know, a deliberate response. You don't deliberately salivate. <laughs> but it's still learning as an organism. Now, note that I'm not suggesting any will on the parts of the slug or the dog. These are purely conditioned responses in lower animals, but they do fall under the definition of intelligence, or at least that part of the definition which encompasses the ability to learn. So we see intelligence everywhere in the animal kingdom, from the lowly slug to man, and now in artificially constructed computer algorithms, like that way I was saying, the speech programs, for example. And that's all that, if you look at it, that's all that that slug probably was, was just a few neurons you know, which could detect an external stimuli, which had the ability to uh, imprint uh, a memory and uh, pass that on into future behavior. So what's the concern then if if this is the simple definition of learning, of intelligence, right? What's, What's the concern that Stephen Hawking would have for the survival of humanity that we've got to get off the planet before the robots take over. The concern, I believe, centers around two questions. Will intelligent algorithms at some point become self-aware or conscious of their existence? And with such awareness, will they be able to make choices independent of their original programming? And two, will they, as subjective aware beings, make ethical choices? If the answer to the first question is no they cannot become conscious, then the answer to the second question is obviously irrelevant. (laughs) Right. They're not conscious. We're not talking about ethical choices. However, if the answer to the first question is yes, there is some way for a physical machine programmed with a set of algorithms to become self-aware and able to perform actions, then we should be concerned about what kind of decisions and actions it makes. I choose to think that an artificially constructed computing machine cannot become self-aware. It cannot become conscious. It cannot feel, i.e. it cannot become sentient. It cannot become more than what we created. So I'm going with the first answer, no. 
Ask yourself, by what mechanism could such a transformation take place? You have circuits, you have, however it's designed with whatever elements it's designed, silicon, copper, you know, gold, whatever. They're physical elements which have physical properties which cannot be, um, which cannot transcend their nature. So, you put together a computer, and so how is it going to become self-aware unless you actually make it self-aware? It's conjectured, and we touched on this last week, that once a computer algorithm reaches a certain degree of complexity, then it'll reach self-awareness. The singularity, I think Chris Essex called it. We have, to my knowledge, no evidence that this is even a possibility. Total conjecture. As Christopher Essex said last week in his analogous to having a very large box where we toss in a million transistors, give it a shake and expect a sentient, reasoning, self-aware being to pop out of the box. It's not going to happen. Just as with the infinite monkey theorem, there's no feedback to guide the development of the random set of transistors in order to produce a self-aware computer. And of course, since there's no such real physical thing as an infinite number, um, there's no infinite number of monkeys. And so any large number of monkeys hitting keys randomly on a very large number of typewriters will not produce a single line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. It doesn't even matter if it's, uh, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. That's not going to happen. You're going to get nothing (laughs) but gobbledygook from a thousand monkeys hitting a thousand typewriters for a million years. In all probability, they will not even produce, you know, a single sentence, a, a couple of words together. And so with the notion of a very complex computer achieving consciousness, it's not going to happen. Any device which could become conscious will only achieve it if we design it and create it, if it is all possible. And since we really don't have the foggiest notion how we human beings are conscious, the notion of creating an artificial consciousness, a thoroughly subjective, sentient, volitional machine, remains in the realm of science fiction. I have noticed, Doctor. Call me Grandpa. (coughs) Seems more touching in my final hours. (coughs) I have noticed, Grandpa, that you keep repeating the same notes of a musical phrase I am unfamiliar with. Oh, it's, uh, it's an ancient little tune called If I Only Had a Heart, a plaintive lament sung by a mechanical man who longs to be human. It's his only wish. What happens to this man? He finds out he's human after all. Always was. Just worried so much, he he never realized it. Hmm. A happy ending. The mechanical man gets his wish. Stories often have happy endings. It's life that throws you for a loop. be so hard for you to be so close to being human and yet never really knowing what it's like to know pain but pain is unpleasant is it not pain lust envy pleasure desire do you know what desire is data desire to long for, to crave, a wish, a request. Do you know what desire is? No. 
I do not suppose I will ever really know. Oh, I feel pity for you. Your existence must be a kind of walking purgatory. Neither dead nor alive. Never really feeling anything. Just existing. Just existing. <laughs> Oh, listen to me. <laughs> a dying man takes the time to mourn a man who will never know death. Funny, isn't it? Funny. I have had great difficulty determining what funny is. I've had the same difficulty most of my life. We're much alike. Now, that particular episode of Star Trek The Next Generation illustrates perfectly where I want to go next in this discussion of artificial intelligence. Consciousness, sentience, self-awareness, even reason itself, evolved over billions of years in animals as an adaptation to our environment. It involves a complexity, which is the result of environmental pressures. Random genetic mutations gave rise to certain pathways in the brain, which are selected or rejected based on their contribution to the long-term reproductive success of the species. That's it. That's the process that our species and all other animal species uh, underwent in order to become intelligent to whatever degree we are. Millions of mutations being selected over billions of years gave rise to what we now call the rational animal, that is man. And while we at this point may be able to fantasize about creating an artificial sentient being, the actual construction of such a being is just that. It's a fantasy. Data in Star Trek, it's a fantasy. We can conceivably create an android that is a series of algorithms housed in a humanoid form, which might be able to mimic or approximate the behavior of human, uh, of a human, so that we could hardly distinguish between the two. But that construct will not be aware unless we're able to design it to be so. We're not there yet, if we ever will be. Even if we could create an android which could emulate human intelligence, as Stephen Hawking suggests, it will not actually be replicating human intelligence. And there's a difference. It'll be mimicking it through sheer brute force of computations. Remember last week when we talked about uh, the computer Deep Blue beating Gary Kasparov mm. um, for the first time after many unsuccessful attempts, by the way? It was only by crunching the numbers with a sledgehammer, as Chris Essex put it, that the Deep Blue was able to beat the chess grandmaster. This extensive number crunching is not how a human mind works. It is not how Gary Kasparov's mind works. There is no capacity for a human mind to foresee the billions of possible moves necessary to complete a game of chess. Kasparov's mind works completely differently from that of our best computer. In this sense, the computer can only imitate the human capacity for reason. It did not replicate it. It sought its own path to a chess victory based on the algorithm fed by its human programmers. It was not aware of what it was doing. It was not conscious. It did not feel victory when it won, and it not, did not feel a sense of frustration or loss when Gary Kasparov beat it. We now arrive at what is not really being acknowledged. Can a machine be created to replicate the human condition in its entirety? Can we build 
an artificial human? The answer, of course, is no. (laughs) Flat out no. By definition, a human being is a reasoning biological organism. An artificial contrivance, while it may be constructed in such a fashion as to mimic the human condition, it cannot, by definition, be human. It may be programmed to cry on being punched in the nose or to punch back and mimic anger, but it will not be able uh, or capable of feeling those emotions. It just doesn't have the construction to do that. Emotions are a direct consequence of our biological nature. A long evolution of stimuli and responses which give rise to a myriad of organic pathways from pain receptors to hormonal squirts impacting on a three-pound organ of goo in our skulls. Pain, fear, joy, pleasure, remorse, sorrow, euphoria are experiences resulting from a cascade of chemicals responding to both external stimuli and chemical pathways. There is no known way for a device made of metal, silicon, etc., and moving electrons to replicate these experiences. Any artificial intelligence developed by man, now or even in the foreseeable future, may resemble a human in form and function, but not an experience. It will lack true feeling and emotion in the only way a biological organism could experience them. This leads us to the second question, which frightens Stephen Hawking regarding the rise of the machines. Will intelligent or artificial intelligent machines be able to make ethical choices, if we could ever build one? Short answer, again, no. An algorithm, a process, a a set of codes, that's all an algorithm is. Interestingly, though, whether it could or not, why would that bother Stephen Hawking? I don't see a threat. I can't see any machine having any interest in us at all. <laughs> and I would agree with you. Right. <laughs> Even ma- if they could have an interest. As a matter of fact, I think you've taken away my punchline. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, any, however complex an algorithm might be or however lifelike it might appear, does not have a code of values. And a code of values is an essential part of morality. Man requires a code of values in order to survive and be happy. Note that I said, and be happy. Because survival is not enough. Man's a rational animal, which must make choices to survive as a man. In other words, he must um, make conscious decisions to further his existence as a rational man. He must choose to produce, and in doing so, feel pleasure in the doing. A machine cannot make a volitional decision to survive. It cannot feel pleasure in productive work. A machine, therefore, does not have the code of values necessary to make a moral decision. A moral decision is one which a rational man makes to further his life so that his, he experiences life. That's why we live, is to experience it, to experience life. An immoral decision is one which a man makes sometimes intentionally and sometimes in error, which is detrimental to his long-term survival and happiness. The result of acting immorally is disappointment, frustration, pain, and sometimes even death. The result of acting morally is a sense of accomplishment, pleasure, joy, fulfillment, and life. A computer, a machine, an algorithm is not alive. It cannot feel these kinds of emotions. It cannot experience life. Therefore, it cannot act morally. It has no code of values. It may act 
but only as a result of its programming and its input, not out of any sense of achieving its values, for it has none to achieve. This, I hope, should give some solace to Stephen Hawking and for those like him who fear that one day the machines will turn against us with some sense of malice or grievance and destroy us. And as you said, Bob, (laughs) giving away my punchline, machines don't really care about us one way or the other. They can't care. It isn't as if intellectuals are characterized by an intrinsic moral superiority. Oh, they're smart, so they'll leap to the defense of what's right. It's like, no, there's no evidence for that. Intelligence and, and moral wisdom aren't the same thing. Like, and if you're corrupt and smart, all that makes you is way more treacherous. It doesn't make you less likely to be corrupt. It just makes you much more, you're 50 snakes instead of two, or you're 56 headed snakes instead of two. Like I've had clients who were, who had very serious personality disorders, who were very intelligent. It's like, that's not necessarily a good thing for them. They're just better at arguing for their pathology to themselves. That is a real problem where people automatically assume that intelligent people are going to be healthy. Yeah, well, they're healthy in that often they, they do better in the world, you know, because, because their, skills are, yes, their right. skills are more marketable and so on. But there's no evidence that there's any relationship between intelligence and morality. time in a little town called La Placenta. Two fine upright people, call them Fred and Sylvia, had a baby. Beautiful little girl, normal as hell, except for the fact that she was born with seven hearts. Midwife said, so she's got a bunch of hearts, nothing wrong there. But Fred and Sylvia were concerned. In fact, they took her to seven different doctors who gave them seven different opinions. Not only that, they had to pay seven different bills. Anyway, they take her home, keep her there, maintain a low profile, and 32 years go by. A little girl, let's call her Hilda, grows up to be straight, tall, pretty, and very much alone. Due to the peculiarity of her internal organ situation, she's not terribly at ease with those of the male persuasion. Downright terrified. Absolutely certain that no man could love her with anywhere near the intensity of feeling that she'd have with her seven hearts. So, she does the only thing she can do. She marries a friend of her father's. Pharmacist, widower, man of means. Tolerant of her condition, but there's no passion, no love, no future. And then, one day, a miracle happens. Hilda finds herself alone with another man, a stranger. <laughs> 
and she hears 14 hearts beating. And my name's Paul McCain. This is the Heartbreak Hotline, 1040 on your radio. We'll be holding down the fort from now until 6 a.m. Give us a call at 555-HEART. That's 555-H-A-R-T. Heartbreak Hotline, you're on the air. Hello, you're on the air. Every time I hear the seven hearts, I'm left with a smile on my face and sometimes a small tear in my eye. I thought it was an absolutely fabulous parable, a completely fantasized story with no facts in it, (laughs) yet filled with a greater truth and a million explanations. And if there's a message to be gleaned from that parable, it is that there is a radio show out there somewhere that might be just right for you. And you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And thank you to all of our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment. You know, there's so many parallels and allegories that would fit the universal message of the seven hearts that it kind of attests to the power of the spoken word and to the power of the stories that guide and shape our lives. I recall when Just Right was in its early years to borrow on the story we just heard, Robert. I was of seven minds about the show. And then when Robert joined as co-host, I heard 14 minds. This sounds really romantic. Isn't that romantic? (laughs) And when we start using our minds, you know what people start accusing us of? Not having a heart. (laughs) It's true. Yep. Of course, Robert and I don't share that view. The so-called heart and mind, the intellect and emotion are inseparable from each other. Each must be tempered by reason. But I guess radio serves many many purposes and many functions. And we want to share with you some of our experiences of what's happened, I guess, over the past year, past two years. I have to confess, when it comes to the point we're at now with our broadcasts of Just Right, 2017 will mark the 10-year point and our 500th broadcast. And I don't think this was either on my or or, or Robert's original Just Right flight plan, was it? I've tried to quit so many times, Bob. (laughs) But you keep drawing me back in. Well, things have happened too since then. Of course, having debuted as a volunteer weekly broadcast on a university FM station in our home base of London almost 10 years ago now, our unexpected suspension, I guess it's still in effect, is it? I haven't heard heard back. (laughs) From CHRW just a little over a year ago. It seems longer already. So let me first address what has transpired here at Just Right since our departure from Radio Western just a little over a year ago. We already covered in detail the events that led up to that departure on a previous show, and I don't intend to review any of those details. However, at the time of our report to our listeners over our suspension at CHRW, we did say that we would be taking the matter to the CRTC, Canada's broadcast regulator, and quite frankly, we still haven't got around to doing that, but it's still on our, our to-do agenda. And there are a couple of reasons for our delay. One being that we keep receiving more information and background details that we want to be sure to include in any official statements we make to the CRTC. And unexpectedly, 
Over the past year and right up even to the past few weeks, additional information and circumstances have arisen that could make our circumstance at the station of greater significance than I would have originally expected. Not unlike the kind of experience that poor Dr. Peterson has had at the University of Toronto. I think we might be, you know, caught in that same bigger picture, if you know what I mean, Robert. Well, I do, yeah. Once you start to uh, disturb somebody, they can uh, make some better choices. Mm -hmm. People get into a rut, and once you kick them out of that rut... They find that uh, even with losing a job, for example, every time I've left a job, something better has come up. Right. And I keep progressing, and I think we're progressing, it's just as Jordan Peterson is progressing. Well, now remember, our only interest or purpose in bringing our experience to the CRTC's attention was largely to demonstrate how its radio content regulations were being used as a means of silencing fair and honest and balanced commentaries, especially when they're throwing in, you know, the stupid racism accusations and unbalanced programming nonsense when neither circumstance applies. We've got a lot to share with the CRTC, with more elements coming to light still. And the CRTC's uh, comment or reply, if not a decision of some sort, could prove to be a story in itself. So that's something we've still got on the back burner for the coming year. Of course, uh, we have no interest in uh, in arguing with the station itself or wanting even to be back on this, the station because um, we're, I guess we're a little bit beyond thankful over what has been happening to our show since we've become entirely independent. And that was the other reason for our delay in approaching the CRTC. We've been kept so busy with new developments since that day that we're still playing catch-up in a big way. So that's the second major theme about what has transpired here at Just Right that I'd like to share with our listeners, and that is the unexpected growth in our listenership. Of course, our suspension from, the, from CHRW didn't even slow down production of the show for a moment. I remember when it happened, I'd already prepared the next show, and we just went ahead and did it as a podcast. And the next thing we knew, within a couple of weeks, we had a sponsor who came forward, Paul Lambert, who lives in Germany, and offered to put our show on shortwave radio, about which we knew less than nothing at the time, I would say. But to make a long story short, within two weeks of our debut on WBCQ, broadcasting out of Monticello, Maine, our online traffic increased tenfold, and we've never looked back since. We're miles away from being a Rush Limbaugh or anybody of that (laughs) stature, but we're a lot bigger than most AM and FM broadcasters. And before I explain how we arrive at that conclusion in terms of who's listening, I should also add that in March we were also added to Channel 292 in Ingolstadt, Germany, where we've been broadcasting since March of this year. And uh, because Germany is actually ahead of North America in terms of time zones, we were actually broadcast there earlier than in North America. And I have received QSL card requests from shortwave listeners to that station even before we aired over here in North America. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? And I never cease to be amazed where our listeners who send us QSL requests originate from all over Europe and well deep into the interior of Russia. It's really weird seeing a just-right QSL card being displayed on a Russian website, (laughs) the voice of free Russia, all written up in Russian and several other languages. It's a very strange experience, Robert. I don't know if you're feeling the same thing. I'm very pleased. Yeah. And shortwave listeners are as wired into the Internet as is anyone else, and the two technologies are merging in ways I never, never even knew existed. 
Now, there's no shortwave official listener stats, and there are, you know, there aren't any listener rating surveys like the Bureau of Broadcast Measurement that you get with AM and FM stations in Canada. But what we at Just Right do have and have had for a while is a longstanding website presence, and we do have a lot of experience with having appeared on th three forms of radio broadcasts, AM, FM, and shortwave, and of course, of course, podcasts. In fact, most of the shows I'm referring to are archived on Just Right sites. So we know from uh, the shows that we have archived how many people are listening. And based on that experience and on the experience of others who know more than I do in the area of shortwave, we estimate that our broadcast listening audience on shortwave is somewhere in the 50 to 300,000 range. And I've been told that's a conservative estimate. I still find it amazing, Robert. And that's a large listenership, but bear in mind it's spread around the globe and not concentrated in any local region or area. Our shortwave sponsor, Paul Lambert, who had his own past regular broadcast on shortwave, reminded us that traditionally shortwave radio was the medium for freedom-loving types. And immediately the target audience is probably already listening to the radio when we came on the air. And he says, while he appreciated we had a great following on CHRW, he thought that the label of a university radio station would uh, immediately identify it as being left-wing. Not too far off the mark there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But WBCQ, where we started, has, he says, has a close worldwide following, and the listeners almost always check out any new program that shows up on the schedule. And they do have the schedules online, just like a TV guide, etc. Now back to something we can measure, right down to the last click, and that's our online traffic and stats. They're as yet nowhere near the kind of shortwave numbers that I'm estimating here, but they do tell a positive story. And remember, we're not a daily broadcast and on average produce only four podcasts per month, this month being an exception because it has five Thursdays in it. But here is uh, where we were before and where we are now. For example, throughout the year 2015, while we were still on CHRW, our monthly online downloads generally averaged around 1,000 shows per month. That's from everything, all of our downloads. During the period since we debuted on WBCQ, that number grew to 5,281 in one month alone, and the previous record high having been about 2,600. And the pattern of downloads changed. Our past shows and earliest episodes are being downloaded in numbers that we had not previously experienced. Even our left, right, and center shows are being downloaded several thousand times now and continue to be so. Another observation, when we recommended or promoted a past show while we're on shortwave, the online numbers are extraordinarily noticeable. I remember the most dramatic being when we mentioned the all-women's all episode, number 279 of Just Right. It was downloaded 434 times in the one week that we mentioned it. Normally, if we had mentioned that anywhere else, even on our podcast or being on another radio station, that might have produced at best, what, 2 to 10 downloads maybe? So that was our previous experience. Now today, our monthly unique visitors and online and our situation has changed dramatically. And Robert, I just took a look at some of the stats this morning. Now we use a package called AWStats. Amongst other things. Amongst yeah. others. There's others available, that we, but we always rely on AWStats. Right. And it counts various things, including specific show downloads. Unfortunately, we have to put them to, onto our own database to count the per show downloads because they add up each month and the same show is constantly being downloaded. But 
to look at our monthly unique visitors. Now, that's someone who comes to our site maybe several times but is only counted once by the counters as a, as a quote, unique visitor. In uh, the year 2015, our unique visitors, we were already starting to do pretty good there. We were getting in the 2,000 per month, and our record high was 5,200. Uh, early that year, and then we averaged, I would say, 2,000, 3,000 for the year. Well, in this year, and remember in March we debuted on another shortwave station, we began the year at 4,767 unique visitors in a month, and that, that was our low this year. And it has been slowly climbing each month until we're going to break a new record this month. We've already passed 9,000 unique visitors for the month, and that was as of December 21st, with a third of the month to go. And to give you an idea, in June, we did 5,000 unique visitors. In July, 6,100. August, 7,100. September, 8,800. October, 10,900. November, 11,001. These are significant increases coming every four weeks. If you think about it, we only produce approximately yes. four hours of programming a month. So for 11,000 visitors to come to our site to listen to our shows... In a month. It's yeah. just phenomenal. And every month. Yeah. And here's, here's another stat. I just number of visits per day. I took a snapshot of December last year and a snapshot of December this year. And last year, our per-day visits ranged from a low of 127 to a high of 955. This year, our daily visits is at a low of 1,619 to a high of 2,187 visits per day. That's not bad for a show that uh, you know, is pretty well going on our own. And if you compare it, as we have in the past with the BBMs for AM radio stations in major uh, cities, I don't think that people realize how low a listenership an AM radio station has. At any given moment. At any given moment right. in, for example, London. And it is in, in the low thousands. Yes. Low thousands. Well, we're not the only ones discovering this, this miracle of what's happening with podcasts and online traffic. Again, here's from the Joe Rogan experience ta uh, with Joe Rogan talking to um, Dr. Peterson about their own discoveries in this regard. And we'll be right back. I mean, it's a, it's an unbelievably fascinating new. Well, you must be world. you must be shocked to some degree at how popular your podcasts have become. I mean, you have, I don't know how many people on YouTube have a larger subscriber base than you, but it's not that many. So, I mean, how how do you account for that? And and does that surprise you? It's surprising, but it's this whole this whole podcast thing is very surprising. But it's um. The YouTube is only a small fraction of the amount of people that actually uh, listen to the podcast. Right. The numbers, uh, the the downloads are insane. Jamie, what was last month's numbers? What was the YouTube was around twelve million for the month, and audio is at sixty million. Wow. Yeah, and I That's haven't done month. like I haven't played very anywhere near enough with turning my online lectures into podcasts. You either. definitely should. 
You yeah. definitely should. It's, I mean, a, a lot of it you could listen to when you're in a car. Right, or when you're you exercising know? or that sort of thing. Yeah. I know, I know. You're because not glued to a screen with the podcasts. No, I was doing some work around my office when I was listening to one of yours, uh, one of one of your things on YouTube, and I found that it was just as interesting if I was doing some other things around my office. Like yeah. It's, it's a very good passive, like podcasts themselves are a very good passive form of education. Yes, absolutely. Or entertainment. Well, and that makes them different than reading. Yeah. You know, because reading is faster if you're a good reader, but right. you can't do anything else while you're doing it right. but people are much more naturally attuned to listening than they are to reading yeah because we've only been reading really human beings have only been reading roughly speaking in any large numbers for 500 years right right it's a blink of the eye whereas we've been listening for a very very long period of time and all this new technology like well, it puts us right back it puts us back into tribal mode basically except with this incredible technological enhancement it wouldn't be difficult at all to extract the audio from many of these YouTube videos and just start putting it online as a podcast. And again, you know, people could listen to it when they're in traffic, when yep. they can't look at anything, yep. Yep. on planes, on, on the bus, you know, where, wherever you are, where you can just sit down and you, 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 know, you can close your eyes and, and you don't have to be paying attention to it visually. Here's the cough button in case you need to cough or clear your throat. And most important, here's an extra long commercial to use if you need a bathroom break. <laughs> Thank you, but those won't be necessary. I have no cough reflex and excellent bladder control. <laughs> it's true. All the good ones are married. <laughs> You're on in 10 seconds and your first caller is Marsha. Marsha. <clears throat> Hello, Marsha. I'm listening. That is so trite. Hello, Marsha. Tell me where it hurts. No. Hello, Marsha. I hear you. No. Marsha. Good afternoon, Seattle. Oh, yes. Hello. This is Dr. Niles Crane filling in for my ailing brother, Dr. Fraser Crane. Although I feel fully qualified to fill Fraser's radio shoes, I should warn you that while Fraser is a Freudian, I am a Jungian. <laughs> so there'll be no blaming mother today. Okay, Roz, who's my first caller? We have Marsha on line three. She's in love with her husband's brother. This day promises not to disappoint. <laughs> Hello, Marsha. Let's get better. But before we get into the specifics of your problem, why don't I give you a little historical background? The psychiatrist Sigmar Brohm, that's B-R-O-M, no H, in the late 1950s, wrote extensively on the problem you're facing, which is all the more amazing when you realize that Brome was a prominent Reichian. Listen to him, he's terrible. Although, <laughs> Someone has discovered our long-held secret formula, Robert, and has helped us put it into writing for us. And in fact, this was our regular listener, Murray T., whose letter I referred to on a couple of past broadcasts and who uh, wrote us following our November 10th show. And his final three paragraphs of his letter I'm going to share with our listeners today. You haven't done so yet. However, if you go to our website, you'll find that his comment is there on the About, under the About button. And we've already let Marie know about that. But here's what he wrote us 
in terms of his impression of what our show is about. And Robert, tell me if you uh, see it the same way or if you have your own perspective. I can tell you right now, it's very flattering. Thank well, you, Murray. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wrote, As you guys know, I'm a huge fan of Just Right, and I've been thinking a lot about it lately. What is it about Just Right that's so appealing to me, and what is that magic element that's missing from all the other podcasts? I've realized over time that what sets Just Right apart, and this has not changed since episode one, is that there's always an organized, well-thought-out, compelling, and significant lesson. Everything in the show ties to this lesson or concept. With the addition of Robert, there are often two concepts, making him such a great addition. I would imagine that it's this part of any podcast and presentation that takes all the effort and thought. And then he says, hashtag never daily, right? Contrast this to other podcasts. In politics and philosophy, they generally are unorganized, the lessons are scattered and improvised and somewhat repetitious. Not to say they don't have anything to offer, but the majority of them don't require a second listen, and if they do, there's a lot of fast-forwarding to get to the good part. Just Right has some similarity to other types of shows, like Weird and Wonderful Fact shows, Stuff You Know series, BBC and CBC, in that they're organized like Just Right However, the content is rather insignificant, non-controversial, and often just plain wrong, scattered, and confused. I get so ticked off with CBC sometimes, like the other day, the title was, Fascism, Can It Happen Here? (laughs) And they start the show with snippets of Trump speeches and move on from there, interviewing progressive experts, never once asking what fascism is to begin with. Absolute garbage. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you that with every show... I learn something, and this something is always significant that I ponder for days, weeks, and even years. It really is a unique experience that enriches my life greatly, which is why I support the show in what I consider to be an insignificant way, which is the point, I guess. Otherwise, it would be a sacrifice. LOL. (laughs) Thanks again, guys. That's great, Murray. Yes, thank you, Murray. And Murray has described the show in a way I'd like to see the show described, and he certainly figured out our formula how we put the show together and what the purpose of the show is, even when we talk about TV shows, even when we talk about art or artificial intelligence. You know, one of our past guests likened our show to a jazz composition. And, you know, I can I can see that. It's the way that we complement each other, uh, meaning our issues complement and dovetail into each other, and the clips complement and frame the show. So it's very much like a jazz composition. Yeah, once and, and you know, took when 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 the first when the show first started, I racked my brain on how I could give the the show a unique signature. How what would make it different from the other shows? What could I do that was uh, something unlike what the other shows were doing? And I I just thought I want to do a show that would be the kind of show I would like to listen to. Yeah. The only drag for me is that I'm the one on this show, and I don't like listening to me that much. <laughs> We've always had that problem, haven't we? Yes. You know, some of the unexpected things that have happened over the years is that. For starters, we've gotten a, a chance to meet so many people who became guests on the show. That was not a planned long-term thing in my mind. I thought most of the shows would just be like volunteer, us coming in, talking, and not having guests. But we we certainly have attracted a lot of guests. And in our some 400 and some odd shows that we're at now. 485, I think. I think with this one, yeah. We have had many guest appearances, but in terms of unique guests, unique numbers of people, well, we're up to about 77, which is quite impressive considering we've only done, you know, four times as many shows. And many of them have been quite famous people. I mean, we got, the, we got a chance to actually 
meet and talk to Lord Christopher Monckton, who was uh, Margaret Thatcher's right-hand man, and that was a great show. It's also available on YouTube, thanks to Robert, you, you filming that for us. Got to talk to Ann Coulter for an hour. That, that was, was fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> and so many other people, especially in the media, that surprised me. Do you realize how many people in the media who have been on our show? Uh, Andrew Lawton, local DJ here in town, Tarak Fatah. Ezra Levant, Barbara Kay from the from the National Post, Brian Lilly, Christine Williams, Jim Chapman, Lawrence Solomon, Solomon yeah. yeah, Salim Mansour, of course, Rory Leishman was on the yes, show, yeah. and so were you and I. We we were actually appeared as guests on the show, and we've had other people such as William Gardner, had many people in in politics and talking about freedom of speech and and so many issues. One unfortunate thing, though, that you know we've been on the air now for 10 years, and out of those 77 unique guests, I'm afraid four of them will never join us again because they have passed away. It's Ryan Dockstetter and Wayne Forbes, Jim Montag, and Charles Stumpf are four guests who, have, uh, who are no longer with us and we won't be able to interview again. But they all contributed to the show and helped make this show something larger than, than what is just the two of us. Oh, and um, there was another person who we use clips from, a couple of them that have died as well, Simon O'Reardon yes. recently, John Hospers. Yes. Yes, as well. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, we're very appreciative of all our listeners and the fact that, that the numbers are going up so, so, so much. We are planning again, Robert and I, to uh, invest some money in some telephone equipment. That was one thing we haven't been doing. Our guests have been in studio for this year, and we've had some unique people coming into the station. First time ever in studio, we got the Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, even though he's been on the show before. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had Lars Hedegaard come in from Europe speaking about his experiences. And one thing we discovered, Robert and I, is that not, being reg- not having to be live on the radio at a particular point in time gave our guests more flexibility to be with us when they come into the studio. Ever since we've gone to shortwave, of course, now we have, uh, we're commercial-free, and each show is exactly 59 minutes and 42 seconds now since we've been on shortwave, whereas prior we were a little bit uh, sometimes over, sometimes under. And you do mention that we're commercial-free, however... <laughs> That doesn't mean that we're not open for anybody who may want to advertise on our broadcasts. Yes, and we do, of course, accept sponsorship and donations, and that's how we keep the show going, and that's how we've invested in what we have now. We set up our own studio here now. We have these great, uh, very professional microphones that make uh, make it possible for us to do the show. And, of course, we have a formula for the show, and we stick to it because it helps us construct the show in a way that guides us from our premises that we start the show off to our conclusions. And how often does it happen, Robert, that we start a show off thinking we're going to go in one direction and it goes a completely other direction, even with our own research? How often does that happen to you? Almost every, every time. Show. I was going to say. Every show. Almost every show. There's another so, little tidbit I don't know that people are aware of, though I think you mentioned it before. In our show, we have eight clips. And out of 485 shows, None of those clips are repeats, with a minor exception here or there. Very minor. Because they overlap uh, maybe in a dialogue. Right. But they're all unique. Yeah, we, and we go out of our way to make sure we don't use the same ones twice. Yep. So you figure eight times, you know. 485. Thousands of, <laughs> thousands of clips, all from different shows and sources. Now, of course, we always begin every show with a, with a drama, and we end every show with a smile. 
And these drama clips and humor take the form of the audio bites selected mostly from video sources. All of the selections reflect some aspect of, of our discussions, discussion themes. What's that number you're showing me there, Robert? Oh, that's the number of clips, 3,880. So far. Oh, Unique my Lord. clips, audio, audio sound bites that we use uh, to break up the show. And sometimes we can spend as much time picking a single sound bite as we do spending <laughs> preparing the whole show. Isn't that funny? That's actually one of the most pleasurable parts of uh, the, uh, of the uh, job here is, is listening to uh, different TV shows, movies, and all that and picking out clips. Right, and we might have several to pick from, and we have to pick the best ones. Mm. They, they kind of float to the top. Now, we don't just play the audio bites to fill time or to give us a breather, even though that helps out a bit, but they all serve a very distinctive purpose. And some of the greatest editorials and commentaries of our social and political environment can be found in TV and movie entertainment clips. Sometimes just that scene or or discussion between two people can say more than all the editorials you've ever read in a newspaper. Don't you find that? Oh, for sure. And, And it brings it to life as well. And of course, what we'd like to think the show's about, it's about demonstrating how to objectively determine what is real and what is relevant and true in our lives, from politics to religion to entertainment and art to science, technology and culture, from history to poetry, literature, economics, philosophy, and yes, even artificial intelligence. <laughs> so, uh, and we hope we're doing this in an, in an entertaining and informative way. We like to see ourselves as an antidote to the establishment and so-called mainstream media, but not a cure or alternative since there's a kind of a symbiotic relationship there. After all, we reflect on what we see in the news. We are ardent opponents of political correctness, and uh, from time to time we've championed our own causes and stories that maybe ran upstream from what the regular media was covering, not the least of which was our coverage over the past year or two of Donald Trump <laughs> and the election. And, of course, climate change. And we've had some great guests on this issue, people that we're just not hearing in the regular news media. And it just blows my mind that these people are not being taken up, you know what I mean, and put into the regular news. It shows what we're up against. And we've talked about everything from official uh, multiculturalism to political Islam, Brexit, you know, Uber versus the taxi monopolies. We've also had um, some unique people in on the show over over the whole cannabis issue and and, issues that are so different from each other. So for me, I don't know for you, Robert, um, wishing you a happy new year. Hope our next year is as exciting as the past one has been. It, It seems like it will be. We've got a lot on our plate. Was there anything else you wanted to add that I might not have gotten in there? Well, I just would um, ask our listeners, if they could, next time that you're on iTunes listening to our podcast, um, please give a review of the uh, program and um, send us some comments and feedback because we always uh, read it and uh, we enjoy uh, getting your feedback and sometimes we're able to incorporate it into future shows. And uh, check out Left, Right, and Center. It's a button on our um, home page. just says Left, Right, and Center. Those are broadcasts that went on for about a decade with Bob being on the right of that equation, Left, Right, and Center, and um, some really great uh, programming there as well. So uh, give that a listen. And thanks for listening, everybody, and Happy New Year. And, of course, whatever the issue or topic, it is our goal to present Just Right as Radio's Voice of Reason. And we hope and trust that That is the reason enough for all of you to join us again in the new year when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then.
to color, color it to black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Dad, Daffy. Fraser, you sound awful. Oh, it's just a little bug. But you can't be thinking of going to work. You're all pasty and clammy and pale. And coming from an English person, that's bad. <laughs> well, Daddies, you've often said you can walk, you can work. Took sort of an ironic twist the day you got shot in the hip. <laughs> well, at least I had a real job. Half your listening audience hears voices already, and the other half talks to themselves. If you don't show up, who's going to notice?